Welcome to the OA Serenity Sunday Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Serenity Sunday Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now our speaker. All right, hi, I'm David, I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, Josh, thank you for having me. It's so great to be back here. It's whenever I come back to this meeting, it's like a reunion. I just did a scroll of all the faces on this meeting and it's just like, I've had so many meaningful conversations with so many people here over the last 14 years that I've been in this program. And um, just to qualify this year, I'm coming up on 12 years of abstinence and my abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. And um, it sounds so cheesy, but I owe this program my life. You know, I've grown up here um, from a boy to a man, to a married person, um, you know, to a sponsor, to somebody who's committed in my life and has a career. And when I got here, you know, I was 20 years old and I just had nothing. Like I was so broken and lost and scared. And my life was all about food. Um, my mind was all about food. Like my, just everything was food. And I, I'm just so grateful uh, it's just so helpful for me to come back and share my story and just get into gratitude for how much I've changed. Um, yeah, it's just wild to me. So yeah, I grew up, I grew up on a, in a town called Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island. Um, I come from a family of doctors and therapists and, you know, we had this beautiful house on the water and my dad was a prominent doctor and my mom was an early childhood trauma psychologist and uh, they drove nice cars. They went to summer camp, just everything on the outside looked great and perfect. And, um, you know, I've learned that, you know, addiction is kind of a family disease and it doesn't really matter how much money you have in the bank or what degrees you have. Like it's just it affects everybody. And, you know, everybody from generations have been affected in my family from compulsive reading and alcoholism and mental and mental, you know, illness. And, you know, it really affected my family. My dad and my mom are both addicts and um, they've been in and out of the rooms my whole life. And my mom's severely mentally ill. And, you know, I grew up in a lot of abuse and a lot of alcoholism and, you know, it just, you know, I always share the first memory I have of childhood. My dad was this big guy and he used to chase me and my sister through the house. And, um, you know, the, the first memory I have, he, he threw my sister up against the wall and he was calling her a fat effing pig and just grabbing her by her chins. And I, I like ran to the rescue and I'm trying to get my dad off my sister and he grabbed me and like threw me up against the wall. And, you know, I looked across this long hallway that we had and my mom was standing in the doorway and I'm just like begging for her and screaming for her to help us. And she went into her room and closed the door. And it's so weird because I've shared that story and that has that was that was facts. Um, but the way that I've looked at it over the years has changed so much. Like 
you know, my first five or six, seven years in program, it was like, how could my mom do that? Like, she just couldn't protect us. You know, it's so sad. Uh, you know, I'm such a victim. And today, I just see how sick my family was. Like they were all doing the best they could. And it's taken so much to get there in my heart to really have acceptance and forgiveness. Um, but as a kid, all I knew was, you know, it was every man for himself. It's fight or flight or freeze or fawn. And um, I got to do it all myself. And, you know, I ended up testifying against my dad when I was seven. The court took away custody. And like a good addict myself, I didn't talk to him for 15 years. And, um, you know, the food very quickly as a kid became a replacement for a family that I never had. And it became my mom and my dad and my security. And, you know, I just had so much anxiety as a kid. I was so scared all the time. In school, they called me mute boy. Nobody, you know, I just couldn't speak up. And, um, you know, really affected by the disease of alcoholism and abuse. And thank God for food, because I'd come home from school and just food was there for me and food soothed me. And, you know, like it says in the literature, eventually I crossed an invisible line and then the food started working against me. And for whatever reason, that invisible line happened pretty quick. You know, by the time I was nine or 10, I was 60 pounds overweight. I got picked on, I got bullied. And um, I just couldn't stop. Like, I couldn't stop with the food. I couldn't stop when I ate sugar. I just couldn't stop. Um, you know, I would say I would have one bite of ice cream and I just would eat, you know, five pints. I just couldn't. There was just something inside of me that when I put it in my body, it just triggered a phenomenon of craving. And, you know, I just wanted more and more. And, you know, they say it's a progressive illness. My... Um, my story was I just kept gaining weight and, um, you know, I would eat over the shame that I was getting picked on for being fat. And eventually when I was around 16, I found diet pills and I found bulimia and, um, you know, it's the same disease, but I went to the other side of the spectrum. And by the time I was a senior in, in high school, I went from being 60 pounds overweight to 30 pounds underweight. And I was a three-sport athlete, and I was taking 15 pills of hydroxycut every day, and I was starving, and I was restricting, and um, it just became madness for me. I was passing out at sports practice, and on the outside, I looked thin, and I started getting attention from the opposite sex. And in my mind, I went from, I have to go to any lengths to keep this going, and it progressed into college. Um where I just became this raging bulimic. And by the time I hit my bottom, I was a senior in college and I was failing out of college. I was in my fifth college in four years. Um, I hadn't seen my dad or spoken to him in 15 years. I had no money. I was always broke and, you know, debting and living on credit cards. And um, I was living in Manhattan and no, you know, I, I burned every friendship that I had to the ground. You know, it says in the literature that we have the total inability to form true partnerships. Like that wasn't just partnerships with like intimate. Yes, I couldn't do that, but friendships, like I just burned everything down because nobody could count on me ever. Like I just, um, you know, I remember I was a junior in college and I had a friendship group and we were, the next day we were going to go to sign a lease for our apartment the next year. 
and I just didn't show up. And like, I ended up just transferring colleges as a junior. And like, it's just, I just was not a committed person in my life. And, you know, I was always getting text messages like, where are you? Where'd you go? Why is your phone always off? And um, the truth was I wasn't having affairs. I wasn't, you know, doing crazy shit. I was just in the food and, you know, the food would just take me where it took me. And so by the time I hit my bottom, I was a senior in college and I was going from every single Whole Foods binging, binging, binging in New York City. And I would count how many thousands of calories I binged that day. And for some reason, that's all that mattered. Like how many thousands of calories I binged that day. And then I would go down to my gym and I wouldn't leave the gym until the calories that I burned off on the treadmill matched the calories that I binged that day. And that was my life. And I would go home on the subway and I would say, I'm, tomorrow's going to be a new day. I'm going to have the willpower. I'm going to start over. And by 11 a.m., I was just off to the races binging. And when I got on the, you know, the hamster wheel, I just couldn't get off it. And to make a long story short, it was Thanksgiving 14 years ago. And um, I was binging my way. We, we had Thanksgiving at my best friend's house in Connecticut. And I'm binging my way before Thanksgiving even happened. I was in a binge and I went up to my best friend's bathroom and I'm purging and I'm purging and I'm trying to get it all out. And I went down, like, I thought it was like a 10 minute, like binge and purge and okay, I'm going to be ready for Thanksgiving dinner. It must've been hours that I was missing. And I walked down and everybody was waiting for me and they're like, where did you go? And to make a long story short, I got kicked out of Thanksgiving and I had to take a ferry back to New York. And just something inside me said, you have to take your own life. Like there's just nothing to live for anymore. And then my next thought was, we have to have one more binge. And I went back to my mom's house on Long Island and I was going to have my final binge before, you know, just ending everything. And I'm binging my way through my mom's house and I'm doing like the mad scientist throwing things out, taking it out of the trash, putting sugar, you know, doing all the things we do, microwave, oven. Um, and I went through my mom's kitchen and then I started going through her pantry and, you know, and down the hallway. And it's all the leftover Halloween candy because it's Thanksgiving time. And as I'm binging my way through the pantry, the OA 12 and 12 falls out. And this is where my story starts to change. You know, the miracle I always share is not that it fell out. Thank you. My mom, you know, this is what happened. My mom was a therapist and we had all books for every type of thing you could have. The miracles that in my binge, I bent over and picked it up and I opened up the OA 12 and 12. And it's something like we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship, a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And that sentence just gave me a light bulb moment because for all of my life, I thought I was alone. I thought like this was some weird punishment from God. Uh, I don't even know. Like I, I didn't think any, I didn't think this was a disease and I didn't think that there was hope to get better. And a couple of weeks later, I went to my sister's apartment and I said, I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I'm suicidal. I don't know what to do. And she said, you have to go to OA. And, you know, my first meeting was 14 years ago on the Upper West Side um, it was a February, it was like snowing. And I, I just, something inside of me just said, keep going, just get there, just keep going. And, 
you know, I heard in those meetings early on, like, just keep coming back, find a sponsor who has what you want and ask him how he or she is achieving it. And at least 14 years ago, there weren't, and um, to OA's defense, 14 years ago, what I wanted was a lot different than what I want now. You know, I wanted a guy who was in the entertainment industry, who drove a nice car. Like, I don't even know I had this list and I couldn't find that person. And I ended up moving to LA and I, I kept sharing. I was going to the 8,000 sunset meetings every day. And I said, nobody wants to sponsor me, blah, blah, blah. And this woman came up to me and she said, I'll temporarily sponsor you. And I looked her up and down and I was like, no way. And, you know, something came, came out of me that just said, okay. And, you know, I got abstinent the week that I started working the steps with that person. And she would take the bus every week for a year as we went through the 12 steps. And she saved my life. And, you know, I, I heard early on, you don't got to dance with everybody, but you have to dance with somebody. And for me, that's what sponsorship has been all about. I don't have to find the perfect person on the outside. It's just somebody I can be honest with one day at a time. And, um, you know, I've been through the steps probably seven or eight times over the last 14 years. And it becomes less and less about the food. Like when I came in, it was all about the food. Like I just, I thought if I can just get to a healthy body weight, if I can just stop binging or purging, all of my problems are going to be better. And, um, you know, they say, you, you want to know what you're eating over, stop eating. And that's the first thing I had to do. Like I had to get honest, what are my alcoholic foods? I'm an alcoholic when it comes to eating. And I had to accept that, like, I'm a compulsive overeater. But when I put certain foods inside my body, I turn into an alcoholic with food. And for me, that's just flour and sugar. And, you know, it says in the literature, the only part of any of the steps we can do perfectly is the first part of step one. You know, I can maintain 100% abstinence. I don't eat my alcoholic foods no matter what. I don't mess around. I don't F around. Um, I don't binge, I don't purge, I don't take diet pills, I don't do any of that stuff anymore. The second part of step one, even 14 years in, is still a daily challenge. You know, I my life is unmanageable because I have an unmanageable thought life. I have a mind that tells me lies. I have, I have a fault-finding mind. You know, I heard when I came in that neuroscientists say we have 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day, but alcoholics are compulsive overeaters. We have four thoughts that we think about 50 to 70,000 times. And for me, that's true. Like I have an obsessive mind. And when I came in, the obsession was around food and the obsessions have definitely changed over time. But, you know, left to my own devices, I wake up with a mind that just wants to latch onto things and find fault. And that's why I need a step two. That's why I need a power that's greater than me to restore me to sanity, not just sanity with the food, but sanity when I'm at Starbucks and they're not checking me out fast enough, or when I'm on the 405 highway, or when my wife's doing things that I think are wrong, whatever it is, I need a higher power to change my thinking every single day. And, um, you know, I want to talk about in, in the first year of going through the steps and getting abstinent, by the time I was at my 11th or 12th step, I had really been restored to sanity with food. Um, but my life was, I was still not happy in my life. And, you know, a couple of years through the steps, I had a sponsor who said, you might want to look at your relationship with your father. And I said, you know, don't tell me, blah, blah, blah. You don't, 
you never had the childhood that I had. He's an abuser, blah, blah, blah. And my sponsor used to say, like, you don't have to like ever see your dad again, but look at the anger that is going on inside you. And I worked five minutes left. I worked the steps around my dad. Like I shined a light on all of it. And I saw this, when I got to step four and five, this pattern that I had that when people hurt me, I cut them out of my life forever. It's like a queen off with your head. You're never coming back. And I just, I cut and ran with so many relationships over my life that if you looked at me wrong or said something that I I thought was wrong, I just never talked to you again. And the first time I ever did that was with my dad, like over the years, he had tried to, you know, make amends and get back into my life and say how much he changed. And I just never gave him a second chance. It was never forgive and forget. Like it was just forgive or never forget. And um, I started to look at that when I got to my eighth step, I really understood the principle. Like this is about forgiveness Um, and it's about willingness. And I used to pray every day for the willingness to just forgive my dad, not ever see him again, but just forgive him because, you know, resentment is me drinking poison, expecting somebody else to get hurt. And, you know, I would pray and I would pray and pray. And one day I found myself in New York visiting my dad. And, you know, one day, a couple of years after that, I found myself taking him to a 12-step meeting and him raising his hand and saying, you know, my name's Lou and I'm a compulsive overeater and I've been in denial my whole life. And, you know, I got to see my dad get into program. And, um, you know, four years ago, I, well, years before that, I was in this relationship that just wasn't working. And, um, this person broke up with me. And the next day I went to my sponsor's house and I met my wife at my sponsor's house. And, um, you know, we've been married three years and my, and my dad gave the toast at our wedding. And if you told me that 14 years ago, that I would forgive my dad, that I would have a healthy marriage, that my dad would give the toast at my wedding, that my best men would be program fellows I would say you're you're out of your mind and that I wouldn't eat the the wedding cake and that the food wouldn't even call to me at my own wedding. Like these are the promises that I get to have in my life. And today I can say I have a healthy relationship with my body and with food. I eat three meals a day. Food almost never calls to me. I have a great marriage. I love my wife. Um, I, you know, I've forgiven my dad and we have a relationship today. I have a lot of sponsees who count on me. I have sponsors. Um, I have a big career that I show up for one day at a time. I've traveled the world. Like I have the most beautiful, amazing life. And I thought when I got here, if I can just stop eating, everything would be better. And um, there's so much more to gain here than just recovery with food. Like I get a design for living. I get 12 steps that aren't just about food recovery. It's about living a great life. And um, like I said in the beginning, I owe my whole life to this program. It sounds so cheesy, but without this program, I don't have anything. Anything I put before OA gets taken away. So thank you so much for letting me share. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. 